Hello, we are the Makers of History. With me, Foz, and this geezer I've known since I was about six. Ross, say hello, Ross. Hello. How you doing then, brother? How's your week been? What's going on? Tell yeah, me all the gossip. Good. I'm the proud owner of a new wall. You know, I built a wall myself, which is to say my neighbours built a wall, and I stood around like a work experience kid and watched them do it. Well, that's how you claim territory, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> There's got to be leaders in this world. The first fences. We're probably talking about the... The period of the first fences when we're talking like Bronze <laughs> Age, especially the sort of fence you've had put up, which I presume is like what metal fence or what? Yeah, you know, it's not like in the UK where it's like wooden fences. In this part of the world, it's like you know, concrete and metal. I think it's like you know, the trauma of the 20th century. Like, if this fence can't stop a Panzer division, then I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, our fences <laughs> are literally just wooden. They like wooden yeah. slats that slot into them uh, concrete posts. So, so there's yeah, no, no security for our land. Like our houses are secure, <laughs> like, but there's no land security. It's not a concern, is it? Like, yeah, if somebody wants to get in, they'll get in. Yeah, no, most of that land is safe. <laughs> no, it's, no, How it's... are you doing? Yeah, I'm alright, mate. I've had uh, I've had an okay week at work. I had Tuesday off, which was nice. Um, yeah, it's been okay. Not too bad. I'm hard on the dragon dragon soup again. <laughs> As last time, I'm on the uh, blueberry and guava flavour. Uh, you know what? This if this wasn't, this had to be designed for kids. Like, I don't know what it tastes <laughs> like this if it wasn't, because it just tastes like sweeties, like alcoholic sweeties. It's the only way to describe it. Like for our non-UK uh, listeners who don't know what sweeties are, they're just like you know, like candies. Americans would call them like just tastes so good it literally tastes like an energy pop it's nothing did you get it off a man in like an unmarked van just giving it to you to be fair I've never actually seen it in the supermarket you only get them in the small corner shops that are like privately owned so I don't know whether there's something in that like you can't get to like a one stop (laughs) like a big chain of like small corner stops to get them they don't sell them it's just the small independence. Is it I just think, the one, like the guy down the, the road? Web. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, hard the on Jesus the Jesus juice. Yeah, hard on the dragon soup. Very nice. What are you on, mate? I have got a. It's a, a thing in check. You can buy, like, uh, basically bottles of draft beer from like small breweries and micro breweries. So I have some from. The Pivovar Neratov, which I've never heard of, but it's like unpasteurized, unfiltered beer. It's only only saleable for like two weeks because it just doesn't last. They must ship it then. Yeah, 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 it's like you can only get it in certain shops where they like set up for having the the local specialty beers. But yeah, it's cool. It's like you know, it goes two ways. Like beer in a plastic bottle is either cool hipster microbrewery or it's something for homeless people in the park and I'm on the right side of that equation today which is nice <laughs> well yeah there's always that reminds me of that what's that stuff we used to drink as kids Frosty white, Jacks yeah Frosty lightning. Jacks and White Lightning which is uh, a 7.5% cider <laughs> that does not contain apple doesn't contain <laughs> apples that's about 8%, 9% alcoholic volume and comes in a 3 litre bottle. But when we were kids, it was about 90 feet a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, was you would, that was a bad time for anybody, wasn't it? When you could get that kind <laughs> of alcohol easily. Jeez. 
Yeah, that probably raises more questions about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good old two thousands. What a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, where were we, mate? Uh, I think we were going to talk about Greeks or something. Or we were, Brad yeah. Pitt. So. <laughs> <laughs> On this side, we stand Eric Banner. <laughs> um, yeah, so last time we talked about uh, the Hittites. And so as we said, like the Hittites were kind of a lost civilization for thousands of years. They disappeared from the historical record. There's like mentions in the Bible. And then nothing until the 19th century when they rediscovered, right? That still blows my mind that that's, that was like, that's a thing yeah. that's happened. Like, yeah. I don't know why people don't like bring that up more. Has that not common knowledge that we just, you know... Just find the civilization. Yeah, just find the civilization. I mean, like we're gonna later on. We want to talk about like you know, like the mythology and lost civilizations and stuff. But I think this is also the thing: like lost civilizations absolutely do exist. Didn't have helicopters or flying cars though. They don't believe into the environment. Refuse to believe you on that That, fact. That's how they won the Battle of Kadesh. They'd fucking attack helicopters and. Um. So anyway, so like. After we rediscover the Hittites, uh, their lang- the, we've discovered their diplomatic archives, and we decipher their language, we're able to read it, and we see references to lands to the west of King of you know, Islands and Mainlands, uh, named the Ahiawa. And this made people kind of sit up and pay attention, because one of the names that the ancient Greeks use for themselves is Achaeans. And Akia and Ahiawa, there seems to be a relation there between those yeah, two. Yeah, I could see that. Because if, if it was to talk about the same region, I don't think you would put them together, but considering it's like yep. the same place, same time, I think it, there, there is a link, a very small link there, isn't there? Yeah, and so from the broader context, like, you know, archaeologists have worked around, and now we're pretty much certain that Ahiawa is the Mycenaean Greeks. So. The Mycenaeans were a Greek civilization that existed something like 1600 BC up until about 1100. Uh, we call them the Mycenaeans. The name comes from the from one archaeological site called Mycenae, which was their main city, the most important center. Well, what did they call themselves? Probably something like Ahiawa, something okay. Akia, Akiwa, something like that. But we're not sure. Um archaeologists probably are I am not well educated oh okay sorry (laughs) (laughs) look can't know everything (laughs) alright sorry I'm like destroying the audience's faith in us (laughs) but no there's good reason to think like something like Akiawa Aki or something like this the reason we can say this is um, in the Greek texts that appear around the 8th century they're referring to Greeks as Achaeans so Okay. It's something related to that. Um, so as we like have you know discovered more and understand better, clearly the the Greeks have a place within this uh, Bronze Age diplomacy. By the 13th century BC, um, the Hittite king is writing to the king of Ahiawa, calling him you know brother, referring to him as a great king. So he's the top gazer then. He's yeah. uh, not too he's, he's in he's in the club. He's in the, that circle the of people club. that yeah exactly. Um, so obviously, like they're a major player on the level of like Babylon or Egypt, 
But there's another kind of reason why the Hittites might do this, and that is that um, uh, the Hittite king is asking for help with rebellion. So he has reason to kind of suck up to them. Cap in hand, jubber. Yes. Yeah, or oh, please help my guy. Yeah. Because then a bit later on we have like an internal text between scribes and it seems to be like a you know, letter writing treatise, like you know, training level scribes. And it lists which kings can be called great kings. And you know, the usual suspects are there, Egypt, Babylon. And Ahiawar is there and has been scraped off of the tablet. So it's still kind of legible. Ah, cheeky monkeys. Yes, but something's happened to their status at this point. So it's either a decline in their own status or the relations between the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. With the Hittites. They don't... (laughs) What film is that? You are not my brother! Uh, I don't know. Might be fair. Doesn't matter. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Go on then. Yeah, yeah. Where were we? Anyway, so to put it in context of like the context of Greek history, so the Mycenaeans we're talking like sixteen hundred to eleven hundred BC. Then we're going to be talking a lot about the Trojan War in this. Um, The Trojan stories, the kind of the two key ones, are the Iliad and the Odyssey. They're written down around eight hundred BC, and traditionally they're um, attributed to a blind poet named Homer. Now, the likelihood is Homer was not a real person. Or was not a single person. He was a collection of people that wrote, like, a, a chronicle-style thing where yeah. lots of people sort of, like, lots of people had into it. So lots of authors. Mm-hmm. And definitely the Iliad and the Odyssey have completely different writing styles. So it's oh, okay. Almost certainly that... not the same person. Okay, so the name Homer's definitely a thing. It's just whether Homer was a person or that was the name of like a writing team or writing club. I mean, I think book probably... Club. I think... Book club, yeah. <laughs> book that's, club. That's, that's, that's solid, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a thing like people believed he was real up to a point, but it's, at this point we understand Homer himself was not real, but it's useful to put a label on the collective of unknown writers that wrote these poems. Like It's just easy yeah. to say Homer. So we're going to do that. And then, so that was around 800 BC, and then like the classical Greece we think of, like Athens and Sparta and 300 and all that stuff, is about four, five. It's from the fifth century, so like the 400s BC. So that's like a thousand years, more or less. That's after, a long after time. the event, yeah. So it's like from us to the Crusades, like that wow. sort of distance. It's easy to get those two mixed up, then, isn't there? Because I, I saw a little, a few things. That a lot of the like ancient history stories that came from this period period were based on the period we're talking about. They were talking about Mycenaean Greeks. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, this may it, this is like a legendary time for them. Yeah. So the, the, this is the kind of the context. So this happens four hundred years later, and five hundred years later, it gets written down by Homer. And then, like, the Greeks that we think of are another 400 years after that. Okay. And then, obviously, like, we're dealing with it thousands of years after they were interacting with it. So, in terms of, like, what we know about the Mycenaeans, so they built these big palace complexes, same as in the other locations we've talked about. The biggest one, as I mentioned just a minute ago, was Mycenae. And the ruins there of the city and the like the palace complex are enormous. 
it's estimated that up to 18,000 people lived in the city and basically like the buildings and the scale of it is so huge that the classical Greek Greeks believed that it had been built by Cyclopses <laughs> so they like the scale of the like the size of the rocks that have been used they couldn't believe that people had built this that's mad yeah I could go with Cyclops buildings so maybe that's how Stone Age was done that's how they all fell down because you know they can't judge distance from yeah it's bad depth <laughs> perception isn't it when you don't have the binocular vision I read that as well yeah yeah makes sense really doesn't it so it's a little bit unclear if this is all like one kingdom with a high king at the top and vassals underneath like the structure of the Hittites or Mitanni or if there's a lot of city states and small kingdoms and just Mycenae was unusually big but one thing we do know is that a concept of a Wanax, which is like an overall high king of the Greeks. Oh, right in the Wanax. Right in that the Wanax. Was... All me Wanax. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> a special area on your body that you don't want anyone to touch. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir, it's Wanax. We'll have to uh, amputate. Don't touch my Wanax, yo. You <laughs> cheeky boy. Is that like our pronunciation of it, or is that like the pronunciation? That's of a it? phonetic pronunciation because modern Greek doesn't have the W sound. Oh yeah, of course. So like, ain't like this oldest form of Greek had it, but has lost it. Oh, that's crazy. That is, you always think, don't you? I don't know why, but in my head, I always think like you think of England now, and then everyone in that whole country has always spoke English, and they've looked mm-hmm. like how I look now, but it drastically changes, doesn't it? Yeah, so I mean, the Mycenaeans spoke an ancestral form of Greek. Like, we understand it, we know that it is clearly related to modern Greek. Uh, the alphabet they wrote it in, though, is not. It's called Linear B, and it's more kind of like a sort of derived form of picture writing, um, which we can read. We do understand, and we understand that it's a form of ancient Greek written in Linear B. Okay. Um, so the the Mycenaeans start becoming relevant from around 1400 BC you mean on like a political level on a political international okay. level yeah um, and the kind of the big moment for them seems to have been when they conquered Crete and the Minoans so to back up a little bit we haven't really mentioned the Minoans much they were a civilization on Crete uh, they're with big cultural sites at Knossos uh, on, on the north side of Crete. They were very and, technically advanced, weren't they, as well, compared yes. to the Greeks? They they were, yeah, exactly. They were a major like, seafaring and trading power, um, very developed culture and art. Like, when we mentioned those ball-leaping ball pictures... It was all based on the Minoans, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I remember you saying that at the time, and me, in my head, going, I ain't got a clue what the Minoans were, but I thought we might have already covered it, and I just forgot, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's only recently since we've been doing... I knew Greece was coming up as a topic. I went back, I was like, oh, yeah, the ball-leaping people. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. <laughs> But uh, they, they seem like a fascinating subject on their own, to be honest. Yeah. But I know there's like limited stuff on them, uh, but they yeah. really they, they look like a real interesting. Like, you just imagine this island where it's like this tiny little island, and it's all the mainland, and they're just like on their own on this little island. They're super wealthy. I bet like people were like really amazed by that. Yeah, and I think that, that definitely comes up in mythology, which is something I want to speak about at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, the Minoans spoke a language which we 
do not know what it was, we do not understand it. We have their writings, they have a writing system called Linear A, which Linear B comes from, but although the sounds are the same, so we can make the phonetic noises, we don't understand anything of Minoan. So it's like, you know, if I was writing in like, you know, our Latin alphabet, and I could write a page of stuff and you could read the letters, but you wouldn't know what I'm saying if I'm just writing nonsense. I actually read something slightly differently to that, and I think we're going to have to fact check it probably and revisit it, because I read a thing that said the Greeks spoke linear I, the Minoan, and then the Minoans, when they went, invaded Minoa, they then changed the alphabet to linear B, which was influenced by the Minoan alphabet. I don't know how true that is, like, but that's what I saw. I know, obviously, it's that sort of period, what we're talking about, where there's going to be conflicting bits of information. Uh, like, I fully appreciate that. But, yeah, I was going to say what I saw. I know you're getting yours from them fancy books, but what I saw on the internet could have been rubbish, but that's what it was saying. What do you reckon? I mean, from everything I've seen, Linear A is the writing that was derived for the Minoan language. Linear okay. B and Linear A are slightly different. They're not. Man, I've got to got some fake news. Oh, I think um, you've. I think you've had like ancient fake news. Yeah, I do love like it could have been aliens. So, so. <laughs> that, that is the conclusion we're going to get. Don't spoil <laughs> the end. Um, so I've took yeah. us off on a mad tangent here. Let's no, get, yeah. yeah. So essentially, like Minoans had a, their own language, which we don't understand. There's probably aliens. Probably um, aliens, which we don't understand, because they're writing <laughs> on their spaceships in the okay. Linear A alphabet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sound settled. Okay, cool. So the Minoans have been like a major power from like 1800 BC, and they go into decline around the same time the Mycenaeans become powerful. And probably the reason for this is there is an island close to Crete that was called Thera. And basically this was a volcano and it exploded. And like, huge explosion. The remains of that island are the modern Greek island of Santorini, which is where everyone has the pictures of like, you know, the white buildings with the blue roofs that, you know, yeah, in every yeah. Ikea showroom it has those houses, that's Santorini. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, Man, but that's going like, to ruin your day if you're like a big trading islands and you're like trading all over the place <laughs> and the fucking volcano goes off. Like, that's going to fuck your shit up, man. That's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin a lot. Imagine what's yeah. going to happen to the sea. Yeah, I imagine you're going to get pretty uh, tsunamied. Big time. All your <laughs> ports. It's, it's all not your ports. Sorry, it's burp then. All your ports ruined. Like. And it's like, you know, nowhere on Crete is that far from the sea. Like, Knossos is up on a big ass hill. I have been there. It's the single hottest place in the universe. <laughs> Fact. Um, it's up on a big hill, but it's not far from the sea. Like with a big enough tsunami, that would be coming up there. I'm sure, I don't doubt. Imagine that on your poor little tribe boat there, suckers. So yeah, so the must uh, the Minoans go into decline after this, and basically the Mycenaeans see uh, uh, you know a, vac- uh, a vacuum and they jump into it and they displace the Minoans. Um, they start taking over their trade network and they occupy and settle the island and the Minoan culture and language gradually disappears. We know that the Mycenaeans became more involved in the politics of the region. We know that they were messing with the you know, various cities and kingdoms in the western edge of Anatolia, the western part of modern Turkey, which the Hittites were also trying to assert dominance over. So they're there encouraging revolts against the Hittites, they're sending troops, they're getting involved in the politics and wars there. 
Uh, we mentioned last time, like, the finding of a Mycenaean sword in Hattusha. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, Mycenaean mercenaries probably rocking up all over the region as well. We get kind of an interesting insight into maybe the acceptance of Mycenae as a major power. Because at a location in Egypt on a wall carving, we have a list of place names. And the place names are all in Crete and Greece. And they're basically in the order you would sail to them. And correspondingly, at several of those sites, we have found uh, Egyptian artefacts, which have the name of the Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III, or that of his wife, on all of them. So this kind of corresponds quite nicely, this list of places which we can date, and also these artefacts we can date. Eric Klein, in his book, he suggests that this could be an official voyage of, like, a diplomatic mission of the Egyptians, recognising the Mycenaeans. What the Jubilee coins? Remember when it was the Jubilee and we all got coins? Like, I so don't think like, it was. It was well, you didn't, because you weren't here, like, because you live yeah. in another country now, but, yeah, <laughs> like, they put, like, you know, celebratory coins and that, like, everywhere. Like that, but less cheesy and shit. Yeah. No, it's not cheers your shit. <laughs> British values, mate. We like to put stuff on coins, alright. <laughs> but yeah, you can imagine, like, you know, this bunch of Egyptian diplomats stopping off at places on the way, yeah, giving yeah. gifts to the local kings. Uh, you can see, like, okay, this is recognising you're in the club. Yeah, and yeah. By... Yeah, makes a lot of sense, that does. Yeah, by 1350 BC, like imports, foreign imports into Crete basically almost completely exist, uh, stop. And there's a sudden massive increase in foreign imports in mainland Greece. So it's clear by, by 1350, mainland Greece has just overtaken the old Minoan trade network. Moved the trade in, though, didn't they? In EU yeah. for terms, that is exactly yeah, what Yeah, done. yeah, we play a lot of. Uh, we... We play a lot of computer games where you do, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a link to that. If you know, you know. If you don't, it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was going to talk to you about the... I think it was series... Episode 2, was it, of this series, where we talked about the military? We talked about the war, yeah. Yeah, we did the military episodes, obviously, until season 3. Uh, and the artwork for that episode is actually a piece of armour from the from the time period it just happens to be it's greek it's their greek armor um and i've actually seen today i just happened to be doing a little bit of last minute research for the episode and i saw a reconstruction of the armor where obviously in the picture that's the picture of the episode two the armor's like a dirty green color because it's obviously oxidized yeah the helmet's very like stringy and loose uh, like I saw recondi- like a not an artist rendition and actually a created piece of armour okay. that followed the same techniques basically what a replica a, a you know to date mm-hmm. replica would look like um, and it blew my mind like how like glorious it looks so these massive organised Greek armies um, they'd be going down in this like polished brass when you polish like uh, bronze armour it looks like brass it's like really bright and shiny yeah. so basically you got these banks of shot like in basically like luminescent golden plate armour like it absolutely blew my mind when I saw these pictures and uh, the helmet looks like a real full helmet like they, they look like 
what you'd imagine high knights would look like, like European, like high, you know, nobility yeah, yeah. in plate armor. Like, it's really impressive to see. Yeah, absolutely definitely. blew me away when I saw that today. Yeah, I mean, like, with the reconstructions, I think it's always a little bit difficult to know how. So, so they take one example for the for the historical source. It's hard to know, you know, would every man have this? Would every tenth man? Would every hundredth? But yeah. like you, like this one guy in like shining gold with like plume on his head on his chariot coming at you, it must have been a sight. Yeah, it's really. Definitely. I think you just forget because when you see that picture, like it looks said, like it's like it's green. It's yeah. basically green in colour because it's so oxidised the metal is. But in reality, that would have been all polished up and it looked like a really reflective, like almost golden surface, like that sort of amber colour. They've got to say, like under the Greek sunshine, wearing. Oh, that's how hot you'd get. That would not be a comfortable time. Jeez, well, obviously there must be massive like layers of, of cloth. And yeah, stuff. but then you're going to be boiling hot. Yeah, jeez. So it can't be so hot. That would imagine that they must have had a way of getting around that, surely. Well, they don't actually wear nothing on the bottoms, do they? They wear like greaves for their shins. But yeah, no, like, like it comes like armor. about halfway down, and then it's kind of just stops. Yeah, maybe. But, like, you know, if you're fighting on the back of a chariot, your legs are covered, so... Yeah. Sweet arms, man. Yeah, but, I mean, I can't imagine you could, like, you know, go at the whole fighting thing for more than a couple of hours. Yeah. No, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. One of the things we do have evidence for from, like, various artefacts is we actually have some evidence about the names of people. And... One of the things we find is that we know that there were foreigners coming and living and working in Greece and Crete. And we have one specific one, because we know that he, this this guy lived in Crete. His job was he had a flock of sheep, but his name is recorded as, like, the Egyptian. So, clearly people were moving and travelling, like, not just on, like, a super elite level, but, like, a guy who comes and, like, oh, yeah, this is a place to have some sheep. Yeah, it's a bit racist, and it? it just says that he's oh, yeah, no the Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, the Egyptian. Not even a <laughs> name. <laughs> but you know, so as people are moving on like a low and individual level, I'm not going to say it's like mass migrations and stuff because there's I don't think the evidence is there for that. But people were moving and travelling. It's not just elites. Yeah. Um, but on a related note to that, is we know that in mainland Greece that we have women with names from Western Anatolia. And there's a very high likelihood that those women are people that have been captured, enslaved, and taken back to Greece as trophies. Uh, okay. Um, and from this smooth segue, we should start talking about the Trojan War and the yeah. historicity of it. It's pretty that fancy word. That's a big word, Ross. It is a big word. I like that. I like how you're just smoothing it, in with the big knowledge. You can tell I mean, which one of us went to university. Hmm. <laughs> It means the historic truthiness. Oh, yeah. Very good. Yeah, the good explanation. <laughs> so, to recap, so everyone's on the same page. The Trojan War, then. Gist of the story. Troy and Sparta have been at war. Prince Paris of uh, Troy and his brother Hector, which is to say Orlando Bloom and Eric Banner in the film, go to Sparta, where they make peace with Men- uh, Menelaus, Brendan Gleeson, but Paris meets uh, Menelaus' beautiful wife Helen, Diane Kruger. They sneak back to Troy. Menelaus is pissed. He goes to see his brother Brian Cox or Agamemnon. 
while at the same time in Troy Peter O'Toole which is King Priam has welcomed Helen decided she will stay and be with Paris ten year siege ensues goes on forever basically all the main characters die Sean Bean decides let's get a wooden horse out they break into the city everyone that's still alive dies at this point Helen goes back to Greece nobody's happy the end I like how you managed to work your way between the historical story name from Greek and the actor's names from the film Troy. I see what you did there and I appreciate that. Troy is a fantastic documentary. Yeah, it is a good documentary. <laughs> you, you failed to mention Brad Pitt at any point. No, that was your biggest oh, mistake. Oh, shit, I forgot about Brad Pitt. Yeah, no, Brad yeah. Pitt's coming How can you forget about Brad Pitt? He's glorious. <laughs> we stand Eric Banner. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the gist. Uh, this is derived from the Iliad, and obviously the Iliad has some extra mythical stuff. So there's like goddesses and gods choosing sides. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff about like you know people being cursed and having visions and all of this sort of stuff. But the basic story is that now by the 19th century, like well, let's back up in ancient times. The classical Greeks, so those of the 5th century, they did not remember exactly when the war had taken place. They didn't agree when it was, because they had about 13 different estimates. But Accu- they, Accurate, then. Yeah. But they broadly believed it was a true story, at okay. least in part. Um, Thucydides, who's probably the first like recognisably modern historian, he specifically wrote that he believed it was an exaggeration, but he believed it was true. Other earlier historians like Herodotus, they just like write any old bollocks, so they're kind of less reliable, <laughs> less less critical, let's say. But the classical Greeks, so our Greek, uh, you know, Athenians and Spartans, they believed it was a true story. By the time we get to the nineteenth century, it was generally agreed this was a mythical story with no basis. In fact, it's just a story. Then, in the late nineteenth century, there was a German businessman named Heinrich Schliemann. Oh, yeah, right, in the Schliemann. I want to put my Wanax in your Schliemann. <laughs> and Schliemann, like, wasn't an archaeologist. He had no archaeological or historical background. He was uh, just a businessman. Top Success- Successful German businessman. But he was convinced, Troy is real and I'm going to find it. So he packed up his stuff and off he went to basically armed with a copy of the Iliad and he went round trying to find somewhere where the geography matched the Iliad he found a location called Hisalik in modern western Turkey and he started digging and he found something so Top he's man. like digging down, 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 down digging, everyone go crazy and he starts finding ruins, he finds gold he finds a massive set of jewellery all survived pretty much intact yeah you know, there's pictures of his missus wearing said jewellery, posing for pictures. Yeah, that's not a terrible idea at all, is it? <laughs> Horrible cursed jewellery from <laughs> thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah, we'll just put it on. Doesn't need preserving. And he was convinced that he'd found the city of Troy. And modern historians agree he did in fact find the city. Purely based on, you know, his gut feeling and, and an ancient poem. That's now, pretty this, impressive. It is pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. <clears throat> like for, and he basically invented, created the whole like study of like you know, 
this period of like going and checking the Homeric legends, do they exist, finding places, he also found Mycenae, like the capital of the Mycenaean Greeks as well. So, I mean, he was finding shit, no questions. Now, with Troy, it's like the location has been inhabited for a thousand years, right? So you have multiple layers of the city where, like, you know, there's a city, then a disaster happens, and they, you know, smooth it off, build the next layer, and so on, so on, so on. What he had done is he had just bulldozed his way through this until he hit gold, literally. Oh, the gold he found, in fact, was incredibly ancient, like a thousand years older than the Trojan War. But the problem is the techniques of the like in mid 19th century not the best like it's literally how many guys can we get in this hole with shovels let's stick some explosives smashing the way through everything and they have just fucked their way through the entire archaeological site until he hit gold so on the one hand the guy had like you know he's critical to modern archaeology and the finding of the sites but he absolutely fucked up Troy and he went straight through the level he was looking for and just obliterated a big chunk of it. Oh dear. So there's still, there's still more area. Like, he couldn't have levelled up the whole city. So there's still stuff we can find there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, the city's still there. There's still stuff we can look at, but the stuff that we lost, it's incalculable. Yeah, it's gone forever. Yeah. And, you know... It's also like he's not exactly reliable. <clears throat> like his notebooks say different things at different times depending what he was writing. Like we know that he was smuggling artifacts out of the Ottoman Empire. When he find, found Mycenae, he's finding all these wonderful golden finds, and it's like there's a rumor that he was smuggling things into the site to find them. Oh, okay. Um. And a lot of what he found, he packed it up and like smuggled it out back to Berlin rather than handing it over to the local authorities like he was supposed to. <laughs> and then, you know, the 1945 incident happened. <clears throat> then a lot of that stuff was picked up by the Red Army, taken back to the Soviet Union. And in 1994, the Pushkin Museum admitted that they have all of this stuff. <laughs> so they had it all cloak and dagger <laughs> the entire time. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so, I mean, this is the problems of like early archaeology, and I'm going to talk a bit about Knossos as well. We'll talk about that more later. Like the guys doing, obviously, like you, you have to like you know give them the the acceptance that the science was underdeveloped at the time, that they had good intentions and stuff. But they yeah. fucked up a lot of stuff. Yeah, they. What's the word? Naive. Naive, yeah. aren't they? Like, people are naive now, but obviously, like, 100 years ago. Well, more they, than that, 150 yeah. years ago, whatever it was, you know, the knowledge isn't there. They didn't know what they were doing. They just went equally, full Indiana Jones. It still sounds like a dodgy fucking game. Oh, yeah. Like, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can pin it all on him. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of it's like the science and developed other things like I'm pretty sure he knew he wasn't supposed to smuggle the jewellery out. Yeah, that's a given, yeah. Might be just loved her, you know what I mean? I bet there's another photo set with that jewellery and nothing else. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> one of those photos from back then though where like the risks you're setting and you're on a fire when like you take the picture like they could explode <laughs> you know. It's the hard work of being a pornographer back in the day. Yeah. You just accidentally yeah. blow the actress's tits off. <laughs> 
Anyway, so to get back to what we what we know about Troy. So we know in the mid 13th century BC there was a rebel against the Hittites in that part of the world. And his name was Piamaradu. And he was going around destabilizing Western Anatolia against the Hittites. And Bit we of a even dick move, ain't it? Oh, you know, like the Hittites were there being a bunch of imperialist pricks. He was wow. Know, he was resisting. What happened to turn the other cheek? That's what Jesus <laughs> said. Oh, Jesus weren't around yet. <laughs> he weren't there to say it. And we know, like that, he was getting at least some level of support from the Greeks. There's a letter from the Hittite king to the great king of Ahiawa, and again calling him brother, but complaining that you know Piamiradu is being sheltered on Greek islands while he's going off and then raiding uh, Hittite territory. He's getting weapons and equipment, and even the brother of the king has been helping him raise an army. Um. Now, when I saw the name Piamiradu, like my ears pricked up because I was like, that sounds a lot like Priam the king of Troy oh I'm, okay yeah there's a connection there now I am not the first person to have thought of that once I started looking up because I immediately went and looked it up as well yeah you never are are you so and I think the general consensus of historians is this is not the same person but I'm going to come back to this because I think it's not as cut and dry as that I was going to say yeah what do you think you're a historian I the think history qualifications and fancy pants I think the character and the name might have lived on even if there's reason like okay it's not this isn't Peter O'Toole it's not wise King Priam sitting on the throne dispensing wisdom being King of Troy but this person is an inspiration for that figure it's possible and I'll come yeah. to why I think that in a bit well the names are very close it's very close and this person would have been known to the Greeks mm. so I think it's it's possible so, the levels of Troy are given numbers. And the first one that was kind of speculated to have been the Troy was Troy level 6. Because it's full of destruction. But, modern historians... It's look full, at what do you mean by it's full of destruction? Uh, you can see, like, you know, the buildings have been toppled in particular ways. Oh, you can see okay, so they can see... I didn't even know you could even tell that in the historical yeah. records. You can see, like, that... Oh. You can see buildings have been destroyed. But modern archaeologists look at the destruction and they say, okay, well, here's some columns, for example. All the columns have fallen over in the same direction. That suggests earthquake, oh, okay. not enemy action. But there's another Troy, Troy 7A. This has fire damage, layers of burned ash. It has bronze arrow. Hang on, 7A. So is that somewhere between 7 and 7B? It's How does that work? further up. One is at the bottom. What's upwards. the A though for the... Uh, to differentiate between 7A and 7B. There's a, a debate whether those are oh, two different okay. cities or not. Probably, oh, I think okay. the most recent thing I read was that they're probably the same city. Okay. But this one shows violent destruction around the year 1180 BC. Fire damage, arrowheads, classic signs of fighting. Classic signs of volcanoes, all the arrowheads. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, that's cool that we can tell that. I didn't know that. Yeah. <clears throat> when we talk about the thinking. end of the Bronze Age, we've got a lot of stuff about this. So it gets okay. Cool. So. We have a city then violently destroyed around 1200 BC. 
we are well in the ballpark for Homer's poem to be accurate. Okay. Then, you know, we get into some of the details of the poem. And some of it is accurate for the time. In fact, as we talked about last time, Foss is just shotgunning whiskey there straight out of the bottle. No, hang on, hang on. There's an explanation for that. I've run out of beer, and obviously we can't stop the podcasting and get more, and I saw you. We're on webcam together so we can see each other. So it feels like we're talking to each other, basically. And I saw you pouring to have a drink, and I was like, I've run out of beer, I've gone run out of drink, and then there just happens to be a bottle of whiskey here, so I thought <laughs> I'd have a little, little bit of whiskey. Go on, sorry, yeah, I didn't mean sorry. to interrupt you with my whiskey escapades. Sorry, carry yeah. on, mate. So we talked last time about how some of the things in the Iliad are even older than the setting of the poem. Like some stuff like particular shields and stuff. But there's also a lot of stuff which is accurate for 1200 BC and which would not have been accurate in 800 when Homer was writing. So okay. it has to be a preserved historical memory. So we so have there is some men- basically what you're saying there is there's some things that actually yes. are true, unquestionably. Okay. Some things are definitely true in 1200 BC that are not true in 800 when Homer was writing. So we see the we mentioned before the helmets made out of boar tusk. Yeah. This is not a thing in 800 BC, but it's definitely a thing in 1200 BC, and Homer specifically gives some of the characters boar tusk helmets. Oh, okay. And like like we like we were saying about how they look when they're reconstructed, I honestly when I, I remember the first time I saw that picture and I was like, "How's that gonna protect your head from anything?" <laughs> like that was my initial thought to be honest. Like, "How's that gonna do anything?" But when you see the reconstruction, these are like yeah, you can't really tell it's bore if It just looks like it's like this ivory ivory cone on top of the reds. Yeah, I've seen a reconstruction where they're shooting arrows at it. I'll try and find the video and put it on the on the Twitter. Yeah, makers man. of history. Um, no, it's plug. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I'll put it up there because it 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 works. Um, and there's also some things like you know Homer always mentions bronze, iron, and armor, which again in his lifetime would not have been a thing. They weren't iron by that stage. Okay. He has chariots, which again, accurate for 1200 BC, not accurate for the eighth century. The chariots are interesting. Because Homer has his heroes riding up and down in chariots, but all of the fighting is like people sword fighting, spear fighting. Basically, Homer knew that there were chariots, but he didn't know how they used them. Oh, okay. So he just has the heroes riding around on them like their little taxis, and then getting off and fighting. And some historians take that much too literally, and they're like, oh yes, the terrain in Greece is not suitable for chariots, Therefore, that's how they fought. They took chariots to the battlefield as a status symbol, got off, and then fought hand-to-hand. But it's like, well, no. Homer just didn't know how they would fight in chariots because he had no mental image of that. There's no reason to believe that they couldn't have made chariots work. Like, Yeah, like, they're not going to fight up there. ain't being funny, but if they, it's like pitched battle. Like you, n- n- The attacking side's never going to attack someone up a mountain. They're gonna to have to come down to modern imagine. Exactly, you know, Anatolia, in like central Turkey, it's all mountains. They made chariots work there. There's no reason. Yeah, yeah, they were Greeks. masters of the chariot, weren't they? Exactly. They're Hittite, Hittites, we're talking. Hittites, yeah. Yeah. So there's no they reason the to believe that Greece couldn't have had chariots. I think it's just simply Homer knew there were chariots, but he had no idea how they fought from chariots because no one had done it hundreds of years by his time. Mm. We also have a very specific thing, which is a. Early in the uh, poem, 
there's a bit that comes in which doesn't feel like it belongs in the poem the the, cha- the, the style of it changes and what happens so like Agamemnon has summoned all the Greeks right and he's going to go off and get Helen back from Troy and there's a list of which city and which kingdom sent ships and the location of those ships uh, cities they're all from central and southern Greece nothing from north or western Greece which in Homer's time was kind of a a centre of Greek culture but in 12th century was not like Greek culture was focused in what's now southern Greece uh, okay. almost nothing from where you know from the Ionian Islands by Homer's time the western part of Anatolia was Greek there were no Greek cities mentioned sending kings or sh- uh, sending ships in the list and there's another city called Pylos mentioned which did not exist by the time Homer was around. It has ah, to be yeah, transmitted so it is, historical yeah, memory. Yeah, so it is accurate. Okay. There's a suggestion that, like, the way these myths go is they're kind of like oral traditions, and then someone writes it down, and that freezes the story. Okay. But up until that point, they kind of evolve and change over time. And the suggestion is this part, the ship's list, is the oldest part, and this has been preserved perfectly. And it's like, you know, you're teaching the poem, you're like, you must memorise the list of the cities. And that's part of it, which is why it doesn't sound like the rest of the poem. But that does make sense. I'm not disagreeing with that. But equally, someone could have just heard the story and then read it down. True. But, I mean, it's it's kind of how these things work. Like, they they exist for centuries yeah, purely yeah, in spoken yeah. form. And it's like, you know, you're telling, you're telling a story about the three little pigs. Like, the way you tell it, to your own kids is going to be slightly different but yeah. the core of it and parts of it are always going to be there and the I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow you down is always going to be there so maybe the ship list uh, the city list is like that yeah that makes perfect sense this is it a part you must memorise yeah. um, so yeah so the there are lots of elements which says there is something to it mm. <clears throat> One of the things which suggests it's maybe more complex, though, is that that destruction we dated to about 1180. This is around the time the Mycenaean civilization collapses. So there's the destruction oh. of Troy may or may not have been by Mycenaean Greeks, and probably not in the sense of like a structured, organized war between great kings. So what what could it be? Well, that is something we'll come to in a couple of weeks when we talk about the collapse of the Late Bronze Age. Ooh, no, still a cliffhanger there, but I appreciate oh, that. Good. I, so the last... You look really cool as well, because you like, sort of said it, then took a sip of your beer, and then looked <coughs> really seductively down the camera, so I did appreciate that. That's Thank what you. I was going for, to be honest. <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk about then is how can we rely on mythology? So I was mentioning before about Priam. And so I went and looked up this, uh, how was the name? It was... Priam Maradu because it made my you know it's like that sounds like Priam and it's like yes the name has been connected but the Priam Maradu the historical person was allied with the Greeks against the Hittites whereas Priam is an enemy of the Greeks but this also puts something else in my mind now I'm going to do a bit of comparative mythology here have you ever heard of the Nibelungen lead nah no not a lead I'm familiar with. You have, because you've watched Django Unchained. 
And you know, there's the bit where Christoph Waltz goes into the mountains with Jamie Foxx and tells him, "Oh, you must save Brunhilde." Yeah. And he tells the story. That's the Nibelungenlied that he tells him. Okay. So the, this is a medieval German story. It's written down in about 1200 AD. And it's loads of shit about dragons and mystical stuff. But the core of the story... I'm more interested in the dragons than the core of the story, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> we'll do dragons another time. Okay, we'll do German dragon stories another episode. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not mistake. The core of the story is... There's a queen of the Burgundians, who are people who live on the Rhine. Her husband, Sigurd, is murdered. She goes then marries the king of the Hungarians uh, Etzel and then she tricks the Burgundians to come and she engineers their destruction by the Hungarians right so this was written people. Down. so she's Burgundian and then she's a Burgundian yeah so this is written down around 1200 AD this story captures a historical memory the Burgundian people were real they yeah. were Germanic people and they settled around the Rhine they were destroyed by Attila and his Huns in the 5th century AD. Etzel is Attila the Hun. So okay. in the story, Etzel has become like this good Christian king and the Burgundians come to him and he's feasting and hosting them and he has to be tricked into killing them. Obviously, we now know like Attila, the scourge of God, like the ultimate barbarian. Yeah. But in this German story, he's become a good king. So in the same way, like Piam Maradu and Priam have kind of swapped roles, Etzel and yeah. Tilly have swapped roles. Okay, that makes that's that's mad. That is, that's a good comparison you've done there because that makes a lot of sense. If it can happen in one story, why can't it happen in why another happen story? Another? And it's also like it preserves historical details. It remembers that the Burgundians were destroyed by the Huns and they lived by the Rhine. It doesn't remember how they got there, so they you know the story has to move the Burgundians to be in Hungary to make it happen. Yeah. It remembers the details but it doesn't remember how it got there. Completely another subject, but at some point we need to talk about how those Burgundians become the Burgundians of Renaissance period Europe. Definitely we'll do something about them. Yeah, we'll do something about that, definitely. Um And we see a lot from this period being sort of memorialised. Another one we mentioned because we talked about the Minoans is the story of the Minotaur. So, to recap that story, uh, boys and girls, or like teenage men and women, are sent from Greece to the labyrinth of King Minos and they're fed to the Minotaur, like the bull monster in the labyrinth, yeah. right? Again, the suggestion is this a memory of the Minoans dominating mainland Greece? Yeah. The labyrinth becomes the huge palace complex of Knossos. The, the sacrifice of men and women to the bull is like taking hostages, taking tribute from the cities. Yeah. To okay. Crete. And mm. the labyrinth, we also have the word labrys, which is this type of like a uh, double headed axe, which is a symbol that's all over Knossos. And that's also the symbol of uh, ingots. That's what ingots look like. Also that, that's a good point. I made that connection, but that's a good point. Yeah, I wonder if that's got something in there. That's interesting. So, again, I suspect that is probably a memory of the time when we had to send our sons and daughters to Crete and we never saw them again. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Captured us Oh, this. okay. Mm, there you go. 
I like that. I like how you've put your own uh, thing on that. That makes a lot of sense as well, to be honest. I've explained it. I don't see how you could. Obviously, there's no concrete proof of that, but that makes a that's a very valid argument. Like you can't really disprove that argument, can you? Very easily. Yeah. So I mean, I think like a lot of mythology captures memories, an essence of the truth. Yeah, but you can't you can't guarantee it, can you? That's the thing, obviously, because it's a story. Yeah, so I mean, it's but it's always interesting, and I think probably this will have to be a story for another time because I suspect we're running out of time at this point. Yeah, but it's I always def- been an hour, bro. Yeah, but I definitely think the Atlantis story has a memory of the explosion of Fera. Uh, and it probably was aliens at some point in the story as well. But we can come to that one another time. I definitely <laughs> want to do an episode about mythology. I also want to talk about the ancient alien stuff because yeah definitely definitely it's something to address all right so we'll wrap up there because it's been a long episode and yeah that's the trojan war and okay so my my closing thought is the iliad is not a historical one to memory the characters the people probably fictional but the basics of the story i'm going to throw my hat in and say true well, I'm going to throw my hat in and say it was all aliens, bruv. That's my hat. That's my hat in the ring. I was so glad that Achilles killed the aliens. Also, <laughs> as much as I've been using it, fuck the film, Troy. Like, you know the whole thing with, like, Achilles and Patroclus? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, it's my beloved nephew or cousin. They were so clearly gay lovers in the book. So very, very, very clear. Oh, okay. But the film obviously like shied away from that. Yeah, but Hollywood weren't down with the guys, were they? That it definitely dude, like in the two thousands. Definitely not. Films, but in the uh... in the Iliad, it is very apparent. Oh, nice. Well, but yeah, let's finish up there. Let's finish it, bro. <laughs> it's been alright. Appreciate yeah, it's been you, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, please, if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. Uh, please share us with people you think might like this stuff. Um, if you would like to ask us any questions or suggest any topics for us to talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at Makers of History, um, and we would love to hear from you. And we'll see you on the next one. Yeah. Any feedback you got, guys, that'd be great if you can put it out well on the Twitter. Love you all lots. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.